it's not that I tell them they're wrong. It's not that I even necessarily believe that they're wrong or that I have skin in that game. What it, what it is, is I caution against stories that say mankind isn't remarkable. Right, I'm recording now. I'll just I'll whack up that, the volume a little bit. There we go. That's so what is a good tip? That's what I would like to talk about on the show. What is a good tip here for somebody? <laughs> the, the amount to pay someone. Yeah. I re- like I said before we started, I don't. I have no idea. I'll ask Mark. I'll ask my friend. On yeah. Somebody who stays in hotels probably knows better than me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's where we wanted to start the it's, show. It's a rather it's a rather unconventional start, which I like. But then again, I, I can edit it later. So good. Might, yeah. Please do. But we'll see. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. So today we're getting better acquainted with Phil Lernis. Hello, Phil. Hello, Dave. (laughs) Hello, listeners. This strand of the show is a a slightly new one for me because it's with people who are fellow podcasters. But I'm going to carry on with the same standard questions that I ask people anyway and see where that lands us. I've got two questions that I start with and then we get all free form. So the first question that I ask people is how... It involves sacking a footman. What's the right (laughs) way to sack a footman? First question that I ask you is how do you know me? Oh, how do I know you? Yeah. Um, (laughs) You stalked me? (laughs) <laughs> online and uh, no now I don't even remember but you you contacted us about uh, Dean Hagland and myself right at the Chopak Hollywood that's right email address to ask about doing an interview via Skype yeah. that's right and I let you know that I was actually coming to the UK to screen the truth is out there a few times and to shoot footage for two follow-ups and suggested that maybe you come see the film and then we get together afterwards. Yeah, and that's what I've done. And we're meeting in a, in a, in a hotel, in your hotel room, which is why you're trying to work out. In a dodgy, yeah, yeah, the tip, exactly. This is, counting this, change. This is, and this, I don't stay in hotels, but if I did, uh, this is the kind of hotel I would yeah. stay in. <laughs> well, one, well, one two blocks away from Victoria Station yeah. is a good, good call. After spending all week on trains and oh, God, in taxis yeah. and on tubes, I realized hotels very close to the train station are a good idea. And the second question that I ask people is, what do you do now? Well, uh, you mean as soon as this interview is over? Well, up to you how you want to interpret it. <laughs> what I do now is I talk to you for an hour and then I take my high-definition camera gear and I go to Shoreditch, which is I gather East London, Yep. or I shoot three interviews that Mark Bennett will conduct for The Truth Is Out There, Ancient Mysteries. The sequel to the epic documentary of comedy, consciousness, and conspiracy, The Truth Is Out There. Which I saw the other day, and which I think, I mean, it was, it's, it's one of those things where I, I have no idea how I'm going to fit in all of the things I want to talk to you about, about it. But I'm going to controversially start talking about your podcast, Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. I find that... Avoiding the film altogether may not be the best way to fit everything about the film in, but we'll find out. Yeah. 
I will be talking about the film as much as possible. But yeah, I want to talk to you about why did you set up Chill Pack Hollywood Out? You've been doing it for five years, haven't you? And it's yes. quite a long time for a podcast. Yes. Dean Hagman and I had offices next door to each other. Uh, his production company, Rational Exuberance, and I in my Los Angeles office. Uh, I served as managing director of a consortium of Europe-based film distribution companies. And the Los Angeles office was right next door to Dean's uh, Rational Exuberance office. And we were friends, of course. And before that, we had worked on a film together. We'd written a movie together. And every Monday morning, we would get together, you know, what we call water cooler discussions back in the States, what they used to be called, you know, when people yeah. worked in offices and you get together at the water cooler and how was your weekend? What movies did you see? Did you hear about this news story? And so we would just be chatting. And I, I always say, and I don't know, this, this answer may be apocryphal now because it's five years ago and I can't remember, yeah. but I... I think it was one of our assistants that actually suggested, hey, you know, you guys ought to go into one of your offices and turn this conversation you do every Monday anyway into a podcast. Yeah. In retrospect, if that is how it happened, if what I remember is true, then I wonder whether or not that assistant simply was trying to get rid of us so that he could get work done. Oh, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. To get, a, <laughs> to get the conversation moved away from his desk. But, I mean, it's it's an interesting conversation that you have. I mean, I really enjoy your podcast. I mean, that's how I came across you. That's how this interaction, in, in fact, came to came to be. You made a film, The Truth Is Out There, with Dean Haglin. Did that happen before you started the podcast? No, it was during the process of doing the, doing the podcast. Like I said, I had been uh, working in distribution, film distribution. Before that, I had been... Um, film production executive and acquisitions and development executive and had set up, along with a couple of other people, a feature film division of a production company that had been around for several decades. So I was working in different aspects of the business, all the while directing films at the same time. And I think around 2008, so this would be in the second year of Chill Pack Hollywood Hour, it became apparent to me that the landscape of film distribution not only was changing but had changed so much mm-hmm. and that most of the companies with whom I was dealing were dead men walking really you know that yeah. the, that the end days had come and passed and just some people hadn't noticed yet um, and I had started to really study and come up with what I thought were better distribution ideas or at least good, at least viable distribution ideas and paradigms. And I was eager to try them out. And so I quit the company where I was working. And I had pitched these different distribution ideas to other companies. And invariably the response was, Phil, you're a very smart guy, but this is not how we do business. And I would try to say, well, you know, the way you're doing business is about to die. Yeah. And that doesn't get you really a second meeting. Uh, <laughs> and. Flash forward a year later, and the you know the world credit uh, collapse had happened, and many of these companies had gone out of business, and I was having very much the same meeting with some of the same distribution executives who were now saying, "Oh my goodness, this is this is really creative. These are really smart ideas you have." And then they would pause, not trusting their own judgment, and say, "But then, why hasn't anybody ever done this?" Right. And you know what I would want to scream? Because a year ago you were telling me that's not how we do business. 
But, uh, but Dean was very open to these ideas, and indeed, many of these ideas came out of conversations we'd had on yeah. Chill Pack Hollywood It's kind Hour. of like, you often refer to it as having a production meeting on air. Production you? meeting on air, yeah. And so I quit the distribution job because I said within a few months, a, a major economic upheaval is going to take place, and it's going to change irrevocably the way that, that business is done, and let's be ready for that, and let's let's maybe try to set up something that can take advantage of the new possibilities that emerge from that chaos. And, you know, people would ask me, are you sure that this is the time, that if you're right that uh, this economic collapse is coming, is that the time to be quitting a well-paying job? And my response was, when better? Yeah. Because to keep a job out of fear, well, then fear is always going to be a part of that job. Yeah. So I went to work with Dean in Rational Exuberance, and uh, we had been working diligently to get another film project produced that would allow us to prove some of our distribution strategies. And what happened was the amount of money that we needed turned out to be uh, less than what we needed. And uh, instead of just walking away, we said, well, we have another idea that could fit with what you can finance. And uh, it was the documentary, The Truth Is Out There. And so listeners may not recognize the name Dean Hanglin. Who is Dean Hanglin? Only discerning listeners will. <laughs> well, I'm, I think some of my listeners will recognize the name. But. Yes, and and many will recognize from the description. Many, you know, it is interesting that uh, he isn't very recognizable physically anymore from his most famous role. Oh, yeah. But uh, he's most famously known as one of the computer hacking conspiracy theorists, the lone gunman. Uh, which he played for nine years on the Fox television series The X-Files and in their own spin-off series, The Lone Gunman. That's right. He was the long-haired, glasses-wearing, punk rock kind of uh, yeah. comedian of the bunch. Yeah, out of the three. He was, yeah, long blonde hair and, uh, yeah, funny. I liked, I, I mean, I watched The X-Files a lot. I, didn't, I never saw The Lone Gunman, and I was really interested to find out at the, at the screening, and it, well, in the, in the film, and you talked about it afterwards, that the, the pilot episode of The Lone Gunman actually predicted 9-11, sort of. Oh, yes, uh, and it is brought up several times during the film, because everywhere we went in shooting the film, people wanted to ask about the, this very fact, but I think it was in, in a shot from London the final weekend we were shooting where we included someone here in London who asked that question to set it up in that part of the film. But uh, yes, the pilot episode of The Lone Gunman involved the three, the Lone Gunman, uh, you know, being trapped on a hijacked airliner that was being flown into the World Trade Center. And this was about eight months before it actually happened. And the plot behind that plane being flown into the World Trade Center was it was actually elements within the U.S. government that were doing it in order to blame it on terrorists to get the American public to sign off on uh, a war on terror and new weaponry and all these sort of things. Which is the theory that a lot of people have mooted after the after the fact indeed and many in the so-called truth movement we can you know call it that because many people believe this or believe similar theories that are not part of what in the united states is known as the truth movement but you know these these alternate versions of the the 9-11 event alternative interpretations many of these people look to that lone gunman pilot as somehow evidence to support their theory as somehow proof of it as if 
maybe the writers had been wired in and had some kind of inside knowledge and were warning us of what was going to happen. Interesting. Of course, this was in the zeitgeist. And ordinarily, I, I do not enjoy using the word zeitgeist unless I get to use it effectively. In fact, I used to direct behind-the-scenes documentaries about the making of different feature films. And one of the films that I did was a film called Panic, Air Panic. It had a lot of different titles depending on where it was released in the, around the world. But it was a, a low-budget thriller, and it was uh, about air terrorism in America. And so where would you shoot it, of course, but Hyderabad, India. And it involved uh, hijacked airliners being flown into the tallest skyscrapers. Yeah. And the film was completed on September 10th, 2001. The director flew overnight to Eastern Europe to begin pre-production on his next film. And when he got into the hotel, he saw the horrible images of 9-11. And it took him a while. He kept asking, how did you get my film here? How, how can you be watching my, my movie already? I only finished it yesterday. And so this was going on. There's yeah. a Tom Clancy novel. A, there was a rap album as well that had uh, the, the Twin Towers on the front. It destroyed. That they had to pull. I know that a hip hop album that they had to pull back because they couldn't release it because right. 9/11 happened, and then it made it look like they were. And there's there's an it. artist that we talked to, and the truth is out there. Lee McCloskey, a wonderful. Uh, he was a great actor, and he's a wonderful uh, artist and author and philosopher. The guy who painted all up the bookcase. Painted like the that. whole room. Really beautiful. Style. Yes, and and. He spent 17 years reimagining, revisioning the major arcana of the tarot because he was really troubled that people who are so into tarot, it's all about the words. It's all about reading what the symbols mean. And he said, you know, the, the reason that tarot had this wonderful legacy was because these were symbols that spoke to people. The images resonated with people. You didn't need to be told. So maybe... These images need to be updated That's to, right. to resonate with us today. And uh, so someone said, okay, smart guy, then why don't you do it? And he thought, you know, I'll knock this out six months, maybe a year. I'll have the whole new set of uh, arcana for the tarot. And it took him 17 years. And uh, for the world archetype, he had uh, Twin Towers. And the, uh, the, the piece that he wrote about it was about the need to bring down the twin towers of our kind of dualistic way of looking at the world okay. to finally release the inner energetics of perception. And the date of that work was 9-11-1986. So 15 years, but 9-11. Okay. And uh, so there was something resonant, I think, in, in all of us. You know... I did a lot of work um, uh, over the years as a dream interpreter, and I would get calls from people, uh, really at all hours of the night, because that's, after all, when people dream. One dream came to me, not came to me, it came to the person who had the dream, but she called me in the hours leading up to the attack, and she had just had a dream where she was... Uh, in New York, wandering through the rubble of these giant buildings that had come down, looking for something, and what she finally found was an apple, and half of it had been burnt away. And so again, you know, we we had so many 
so many stories about this, so many inklings that something was coming. Something bubbling up in the collective unconscious. Yes. It's interesting. So your film, The Truth Is Out There, I mean, I, I saw it and I had... You did not yell at me afterwards, I which I appreciate. I, was, I didn't, and actually the audience did. It, there, was, there was quite a lot, you did have quite a lot of, let's say... A strong negative reactions. Was it negative? Uh, this is the question. Was it, was it negative? I mean, I we got a review out of a screening in Birmingham last night that was was negative. To me, negative is the film has nothing to say. Yeah, that's right. And, and it it's from and it's from like people. That. They said it had something to say. And and, <laughs> and 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 negative also tends to come from people who don't even watch the whole thing. Yeah, these were people who had emotional reactions that's to the true film. that is really true and what is interesting and for me to say that it's negative would be to almost agree with their point mm -hmm. because much of their point was that if I, if I can find kind of a cohesion between these sort of energetic comments coming my way one of it was that there's a real danger to allowing people to express their theories and their beliefs when those theories and beliefs might be harmful. Yeah. And that there's a danger in allowing that kind of expression. And the point that I took, I am as devout a believer in the importance of freedom of speech as anyone I have ever met. And I would nevertheless not be so presumptuous to say that, that some speech is not dangerous. Yeah. What I know is always dangerous from both my own personal life and from the history of my country mm -hmm. is it is always dangerous to repress or suppress speech or to silence I, uh, people. Yeah, that I is always dangerous. I can't say that allowing it isn't sometimes dangerous, but I know that silencing it is, is dangerous. And so for me to then label these people's reactions to the film and their reactions of me as negative okay. would be to express an opinion that somehow they sh those you feelings be, shouldn't be expressed. You would be suppressing their statements, yeah. which is what they kind of were sort of trying, well, not trying to say that you should have done as a director with your subjects. Right, right. And, and you know, it was very interesting where... In that exchange, one of the people who had had a really visceral reaction to the film actually was turned around mm. by the discussion that we had. By mm. what, you know, and later on, of course, we got to this point where many of the people and I, I think, really formed a, a very solid uh, friendship, or at least beginning of a friendship, given we had just met. But you know, this this idea that we can't disagree passionately anymore is one of the most troubling things of our modern age, I think. I, I long for a society where we perhaps remember that those people in our lives we value the most are those that challenge us, that raise the bar for us, that stick our feet to the fire. And, uh, and those are also, by the way, the people who are most interesting, aren't they? I mean, the, the ones that are most like us are not that interesting. No. I, which is why we're not staying in the room staring in an actual mirror all the time. Well, that's one of the things I'm trying to do with this project is to sort of find out what makes other people tick and listen to them. I, I actually had a, a truth is out there moment in one of my conversations that I had recently. And I, I, I didn't have the 
because it, it came out of the blue and it, it surprised me. I didn't have the, the skill that I find that you and, well, Dean Haglin on screen, but probably you off screen as well, had in allowing people the space. So at the end of one of my conversations, my friend started talking about the theory that I think you're looking into in your in your second film about the pyramids being built maybe by aliens and the Mayan prophecy for 2012 maybe being true. And I did want to allow him the, the, the space, but I, I also found this kind of moment where I... I mean, I'm not happy with the way I, I, I dealt with it, but because, and I didn't quash it, I didn't quash it completely, but it just, it came so out of the blue. And I guess my fear was, because he's currently doing my social media for a project, that yeah. I, I didn't want people to think that I had bad judgment because I would uh, allow someone with these ideas to do a job that he does very well. He does it fine. You know, he, there's no reason to, to for him to be a bad bad at social media just because he he gives a little bit of credit to these theories. He doesn't even he doesn't he's right. not a true believer. Right. He's just an int- he's just interested. And and yet this brings up one of the most uh, important points I think about freedom of speech and when I hear people use the rallying cry of freedom of speech in the states to defend someone who has had ramifications come down upon them based on something they've said. Mm. Freedom of speech does not mean freedom from responsibility. You say it, you need to expect that there will be consequences to what you've said. It's just that you are allowed to say it. That doesn't mean that everyone has to love you for it or everyone has to accept (laughs) it. I mean, and part of the responsibility, and this is why, though, letting people speak and freedom of speech is important. What you brought up is, you know, when what we do reflects upon who who we are, um, at least in the perception of other people. And what we say affects that perception that other people have. And when we are saying what we are saying as a filmmaker or as a web designer or as an actor or as a politician or or what have you, it reflects upon the job you're doing Mm -hmm. that you've been brought upon to do or the company for whom you work or your partners or your family, right? And so there is that sense of responsibility. But we can only get to the point where we can become better at navigating other people's perceptions in terms of how we speak if we are in practice of speaking in the first place. Mm. Again, when things get repressed and suppressed, they will come out and almost always at altogether the wrong time. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, but with the ancient aliens and, you know, I find myself cautioning that, you know, getting back to this idea that it's dangerous to let people speak. I do find myself cautioning certain people uh, about certain types of narratives and and aliens building the pyramids is one of those. The moon landing being fake is another one of these. It's not that I tell them they're wrong. It's not that I even necessarily believe that they're wrong or that I have skin in that game. What What it is is I caution against stories that say mankind isn't remarkable okay if you constantly believe theories that say man couldn't have accomplished some of these extraordinary things 
you are basically arguing that man is not extraordinary. Right. And that does two things to me. It denies us something to aspire to, namely achievement. Mm -hmm. But it also lets us off the hook for how powerful we are. Mm. Yeah. And I'm, you know, my position, and this was what people kept uh, trying to pin me down on at that screening the other night. What's, what's your position? Right. Yeah. They, they didn't want to, because it was a psychology conference, they didn't want to ask me, what do you believe? Yeah. Right. Because they don't want to acknowledge that belief is important. They, no. they wanted to find out what my position was. That was the word. And my position is one of always advocating personal responsibility. Mm. And, and that's where those stories, I think, are dangerous because they slightly say it's okay for us to let ourselves off the hook for uh, when, in fact, we are incredibly powerful. Well, I wish I'd said something like that in response. That would have been good. I mean, m my, my fear has always been about conspiracy, if, if we're going to call it conspiracy, or these other theories, these unusual theories about reality, is that they are a distraction. And I think you sort of said that that was your starting point for this film, almost, that you felt that the Obama birth certificate stuff was distracting from a, a legitimate conversation about health. Yeah, about healthcare, and there were all sorts of conspiracy theories revolving around that. And at no point in the United States during our healthcare debate were the conversations that I at least would have liked to have heard allowed to take place. What do we expect by healthcare? What do we mean by it? Why is it called healthcare and never health cure? What role does nutrition play? What role does personal responsibility yeah. play? What about these laws that uh, protect pharmaceutical companies, for example? You know, I mean, uh, so many topics that could have been discussed under this umbrella of healthcare, and I, I always jokingly say it always just devolved into birth certificate talk, but that there is a real germ of truth in, in that joke. But then it's interesting that your response to that that kind of that fear that things were being distracting was I think you said it made you angry. Your response to anger seems to me to be a very admirable one. I was very impressed. It's one that I aspire to of of trying to understand the thing that makes you angry. Uh, there's two things about this. I've lived long enough now where I know the bigger my reaction to something, the older the material I'm dealing with. And this is true for everybody I meet. You know, when an artist who has seen the truth is out there for the first time and is meeting me for the first time is that passionately agitated by the film yeah, well, he was and, and is directing it at me, I know it has nothing to do with me. Yeah. You know, it, it couldn't be that big if it just happened in the you moment. You represent something else. I represent him, yeah. something else. The film triggered something in him that goes back, that mm. is longer standing. I have no idea what that is, and it doesn't matter. And because I know that it's not personal, I don't have to take it personally. And once I'm free of taking it personally, well, then there's nothing for me to get upset about. So that's part of it, is that I recognize in myself that when I get angry, this is some old material that I'm dealing with. Also, though, there are plenty of other filmmakers who will just express their anger. That's fine. They can be really fun movies. But I think once you do that as a storyteller, you are painting yourself with that brush. Yeah. And it becomes difficult sometimes to maintain credibility as a messenger then. And in fact, you almost always have to then go around finding the thing that makes you angry. Yeah. And it's more interesting to me to ask questions about those things that, that make us angry. Okay, I can list all the reasons why this is wrong. 
can I find reasons why this serves? Yes. And this idea angered many of the people in the post-discussion. The idea that everything serves in some way. And of course, I'm always ready for the examples. And this is this, you know, this came. Well, okay, let's just for conversation's sake use as the first example Hitler. And I know the first example is always going to be Hitler. I'm always kind of laughing to myself, wondering where what their second example yeah, is going to be. It's God, you know, Godwin's law, isn't it? That's what they call it on the internet. The first, the first person to mention Hitler in the Holocaust. <laughs> where, where are you going to go after that? Yeah. What's okay? What's really bad after Hitler? It's interesting because no one ever wants to hear the words that everything serves. And what was coming back to me was, you said that everything works out the way that it's supposed to. No, I, I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that at all. Um, you said that on balance everything is okay. No, I didn't say that. I just said that everything serves in, in some way. And it's, again, our personal responsibility and choice, if we want to, to try to find out how it serves. An example that I gave, of course, was 9-11. You know, there's still much frustration and much anger, and and I love truth seekers, and I and I love the truth movement, and you know when they get very angry about things, I like to remind them that if they look around the room, they've made some of the best friends of their lives, the the, the best people they will ever know, they will ever meet, and they met them through their shared protest of 9-11 and these friendships and therefore these communities would not have formed if that event did not happen Mm -hmm. does that make it all okay does that mean it was worthwhile does that mean that we wish it had not happened you you know uh, 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 of course not it doesn't it doesn't outweigh that we can still hold the feeling of wishing it had not happened and at the same time having gratitude for what came out of it Mm. because that is human nature isn't it i mean we at our best we take our weaknesses and turn them into strengths we take our failures and from them we learn exactly what we need in order to achieve some sort of success although you could say i mean the thing about 9-11 is the, the the lessons that were that could have been learned in that moment on a larger level were not were not learned indeed that's what i say all the time i mean and i think that that more than anything, is is what still fuels this inability to let go, because it was the frustration of how much was possible in the wake of 9-11. Mm. It looks like it's a conspiracy, because of the way that they really jumped on it. I right. mean, I'm, I'm not sort of, I don't want to challenge particularly the conspiracy theories, because I think your, your film didn't challenge the conspiracy theories. It didn't debunk them, I think was the word you were using. Right, right. And I really respected that. Because, I mean, when I saw the film, my two responses were, were one was that, you know, because you presented the conspiracy theorists or truth movement or whatever right. the right term is now, you know. So yeah, depending on the topic. There, there were so many different topics yeah. that, you know. But when you presented those people and allowed them to have their space and to speak and to, to go through all of the processes of a, of a proper long-form interview that I, that I do on this show is that, that, that by the end of a, a period of time, people are revealing new things about what they think that they didn't necessarily reveal at the beginning. So there was that. And so one of the things I thought was how human these people were, how similar they were. One of the things I really thought about is something that I've also brought up on on my show before, which is when I was a kid, we were gonna get a pet and I wanted to get a snake. 
And my mum's response to me saying, can, can I get a snake was, if we have a snake and it dies, I'll have to throw it out of the window and it will upset someone walking by. <laughs> right? Which is a kind of, which is a, a very strange logical leap. Like that she made in that moment, right. and that was what I was seeing sometimes on on that screen. And not, not I don't think all of the people made these kind right. of but that was a kind of that's something that we should recognise in ourselves. I'm sure I do that in arguments when I get very angry and I really feel passionate about something, and then I'm saying something I don't mean at all, but in the moment I mean it, and then I change my, you know, and then right. it kind of gets locked in. So I thought it's really interesting that maybe we could, it, maybe it would be just as interesting, you know, people who don't agree with these people. Um, and what they're saying should maybe apply that to all of the people they see on TV and not just the people who are saying the really radical things like maybe some of the politicians that are saying this is what they think should happen they're conspiracy theorists in their own way they're creating false logic the, the banking sector for example has been creating this right. false logic for a long time that I think was one I th of my reactions I think when, when, when dealing with skepticism and skeptics and I love skeptics. I just don't meet very many. <laughs> I meet a lot of people that call themselves skeptics. But to me, they fail the number one criterion, the top criterion for being skeptical, which is you have to be skeptical of your own skepticism. Yeah. If you are not skeptical of your own skepticism, then it has become dogma. Mm -hmm. You're a believer. Yeah. In skepticism. But then, That's your faith. And we are maybe all a little bit believers. And that was one of the things I right. really took from it. And you and, and your belief is in your skepticism. Yeah. And that's fantastic. And look, why do we love... The, one of the reasons we love The X-Files, one of the reasons we loved it, one of the reasons it endures, is that relationship between Mulder and Scully. Yes, two very attractive people and two actors <laughs> who had chemistry. Yeah. Most importantly, though, it was a relationship that was built on respect, and yeah. it was the respect of a complete believer and a complete skeptic. Yes. Who respected each other yeah. completely because they knew each other were authentic, genuine, and trustworthy. So the disagreements don't matter in the face of this. Eric and Eliza Roberts, two wonderful actors, are in the or in the truth is out there talking about their uh, feelings about 9/11 and uh, and Eric even says that you know we don't agree on everything about the build up to it but we both agree that the official story doesn't tell us what was really going on well when you listen to what they say in the film they actually agree on almost nothing yeah, that's they really keep refuting that's each really other interesting. but what comes through loud and clear in watching them is how much they adore and love each other yeah. And I got to tell you, disagreement in marriage, in personal relationship, is harder than it is with our friends yeah. and our acquaintances. Definitely. Because you have to go home with that yeah. person. And if they can do it, if Mulder and Scully can do it, <laughs> then we can all do it. And not only can we do it, but there's such rich rewards for doing it. And there it. is a value, yeah, value for us as a society, as people. I mean, that was really, I mean, and, 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 and that's something I, I want to come back to in a, in a minute, really, about... about and and only things. then can we get to the point where, instead of getting angry about the fact that we're different, we celebrate the fact that we're different. Yeah. Because it is in those differences where better questions start to emerge. Mm -hmm. With 9-11, the example that I constantly give is, I don't care if you believe that terrorists conspired to bring these buildings down under cover of darkness 
to instill such terror in a populace that we would willingly give up our own freedoms and sign off on wars that would bankrupt us, or if you believe the alternate version that people within our own government conspired to bring these buildings down, to blame it on terrorists so that we would feel so frightened that we would willingly give up our freedoms and sign off on wars that would bankrupt us. I don't care. The story's the same. All that's happened is that there's different villains. Now, if a crime's committed, should we investigate a crime and and try to bring people to, to justice? Of course. A crime was committed, it was never investigated like a crime. Yeah. That's the first thing. Yeah. But the but better questions that therefore can be asked, such as always, you know, is it truly fundamentally a, a good idea to respond to an act of violence with another act of violence? Yes. Because isn't violence always winning Indeed. then? And and beyond that, how can we ever truly trust the reasons we're given to go to war so long as we allow massive corporations to profit to the tune of trillions of dollars off death and destruction. Yeah, that, and that was the other thing that I felt when I was watching the, the film, was that the other thing I really took away from it was that when we see these theories, these conspiracy theories or whatever we want to call them, they're kind of, we, you can see them as symptoms of some of, of of something not being right you know like rashes on the kind of social body if you like that, that there are conspiracies at the moment in this country we have a big phone hacking scandal with Rupert Murdoch and that is a true conspiracy it's well as much as I don't want now I'm now I'm saying things are true but but it seems to be something that has happened the Watergate scandal there have been conspiracies politics have had kind of conspiracy didn't it now I I do tend to I tend to favor the the belief I think that one of the the, the people who play the lone gunman says in your film that the that, that, that conspiracy to me tends to be suggest it kind of incompetence that's being covered up after the fact or the other thing that's said in it is business as usual I don't think that there are you know five people controlling the new world order but I do think that there are are things that have been hidden from the public on what's going on. And know? here's another argument in favor of letting people speak is and, and encouraging them to do so. I think that those secrets might be necessary from time to time. The act of keeping secrets is an incredibly, both mentally and physically, unhealthy act. Mm-hmm. It, it, we, we know what it does to us when we're keeping secrets. Yes. yes. We, it, it is eroding our health. Yeah. And we are giving our power to secrets. In any relationship, whether it be business or romantic or whatever it is, we're going we're gonna to do things we wish we hadn't done. Mm-hmm. But the human animal is an incredibly forgiving being. What almost always happens, though, is that we, we cover up what we did. And why do we do it? We might say because of how someone else will react. But really what it is, is we're scared we can't handle the other person's reaction. Mm-hmm. So we cover it up. And we put so much energy into covering it up. Well, then we can never let the truth out because then the larger question is, why did we spend so long covering up this little stupid thing? Like the Watergate burglary. Yeah. Nixon was going to win that election yeah. in a landslide. Yeah. Right? But when you were in the practice of keeping secrets which I again is un, is unhealthy you make unwise personal decisions and I think it's a, it's a really interesting area to explore which is to study 
you know, the long-term effects and the impacts on families and entire communities where members of those families and communities have been in the professional business of keeping secrets. I mean, what gets visited upon their partners, mm-hmm. their, their children, and again, their communities? And I think that that we're seeing, the proliferation of conspiracy theories might be another symptom of that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was. I mean, really, I found it very fascinating. I really would urge people to purchase it and to to see the follow-ups. And um, how can they do that? I wonder. Well, I don't know. You tell me. There's a website. <laughs> uh, I'm glad that you asked. There's a website. Truth-is-out-there.com. Truth is out there with dashes in it. Don't go to Truth is out there without dashes, right. or I think you go to a website about the rapture. <laughs> I'm serious, but, but yeah, and there and there are DVD sure. versions uh, that are available in uh, in in Europe and the States and Australia. But there's also a digital download version that's available anywhere in the world that people can watch from their computer. I mean, I really found it fascinating, and I'm looking forward to buying the two DVD box set after ah. this and uh, watching it at home and showing showing other people. So I had a very strange experience of watching it though, because on the way there I was listening to you in my headphones, and on the uh-huh. way back I was listening to you in my headphones. Then I was seeing you in person, and it was very interesting. What were they, just podcasts? Yeah, on your, pod- yeah, okay. yeah, yeah right. your podcast, your most recent podcast, because I, I listen regularly. I'd let a backlog build up, and then uh-huh. I, I had it this week. I'm sure some of my questions are going to be referring to things you said in the podcast. One of the things you, you sort of talk about, I think, all over the place is if someone tells a truth, then it's true. You know, it doesn't have to be objectively true. It's their truth in that moment. That's sort of something I think you, you've, you've spoken about. Could you? Yes. Again, this idea of being authentic. We we know within minutes of meeting someone if if the person we're we're with is is authentic yeah. and genuine. And this is why I don't like to get bogged down in this idea of of belief too much, because to me belief is is just a case of good manners. If I am talking to someone who is honest and authentic with me, and they're telling me what happened to them, let's say, it may sound far fetched. But it would be bad manners for me not to believe them because I've already established that this person is authentic and honest. And they're telling me their truth. Now, we all know that truth is based in at least part. We might disagree on how much of a part, but it's based in part on just personal perception. And again, all you need to be is in in a relationship to know this, that nothing ever happened the way that you thought it was. And you will hear this time and time again. Or a family, even if you haven't got a relationship. Right. Get to a family family get-together and you'll hear a hundred different truths. A hundred different versions of how something (laughs) happened, how one thing happened. Absolutely. I mean, was it your mother that said the the thing about the snake? Yeah, she doesn't think it happened. She doesn't think it. Three of us in the room did and she doesn't. So, I mean, absolutely. Indeed. And so, and none of you are lying. No, absolutely. And none of you are lying. And and this is the issue. So where does truth lie? Well, we we create the world we live in by the stories we tell and by the stories we believe to be true. So if your mother believes that she never said that, she never said that. And that's the world she lives in. So... You can say, well, objectively, that's not the case, but that is the world that she lives in. Yeah. So you were denying a real world. It's the world your mother lives no, in. No, I know. I, I shouldn't. And, it's true. I try and, not to. Now, <laughs> and, and for the most part, and you know, you see this again in The Truth is Out There, you know, there are some people who their truths are really, really far-fetched. But as you listen to them talk, 
And certainly I had this experience when I was shooting it. Some of the people that I had judgment for the moment we met, by the time I was done hearing their story, maybe I wouldn't necessarily believe that things happened exactly the way they said that it happened. But I can't deny that the person who told us this is loving, kind, gentle, generous, a good human being who is of service to mankind. Mm -hmm. So whatever it is that leads someone to become that kind of person, if that's not truth, I don't know what is. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm I'm being a yes man here, which is <laughs> which is interesting because one of the things that you also talked about is that Dean Hagland was the reason one of the reasons you chose him to be the kind of front person for the film, not just because obviously he has he has connections with conspiracy theories from his acting career, and also I think he has an interest in it for his acting career, sure, sure. Um, but also he's an improv guy, and so he is trained in the art of of saying yes and going with somebody else's statement. What I think is really great about his interview technique, I mean, I was thinking, I wish I wish I could, you know, soak this this up and, and use this all the time, is that he really respects everything that's said and he mirrors it back and he just extends it and it just, it, it's, it's, it's enjoyable to watch those interactions just on a purely dramatic level of just seeing right. things roll around and grow and not be like that, which is what happens so often in argument, you know, that you right. were so used to that. Well, you know, in the United States now, many corporations are having, uh, for example, their sales teams take improv classes. <laughs> now, of course, they're doing it to help promote the bottom line, but it... it well, but, that's their truth. But, but I say this to <laughs> underscore the, the really the important skills that are learned through improv comedy. Mm -hmm. and, and indeed, that was Dean's training. Dean trained in dance and art and improv comedy, uh, irrespective of becoming a, you know, an actor on The X-Files. And he really did develop this ability to walk through the world with his arms open wide saying yes to all the possibilities. And when you think about it as an improv comic, that's what you need because you never know when an idea out in that room in the audience is going to pay off mm. into gold. And we never know when we're walking through the world when an idea is going to pay off into gold. One of, the, one of my favorite discussions Dean and I ever had, and it's one we reference a great deal, is the difference between something being valid and something having value. Brilliant. Right. And, 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 and this was what Dean said, although here, again, versions of the truth. He says, I said it, and I remember him saying it. But it's the difference between something having value and something being valid. We, we get so hung up on whether something's valid. In, indeed, going back to the screening, I was supposed to apparently tell some of these people that their points of view were invalid because validity is defined by the construct of the conversation you're having. And we're stuck very much in whether something is valid. Yeah. Uh, and, and the example I always use is if I need to fix my car's engine and you're trying to teach me how to you know, drive manual, I'm likely to reject what you have to offer me because it's not valid to the conversation I want to have. Mm -hmm. But once I get that engine fixed and I realize I'm in the UK where cars are manual and not automatic like what I'm used to, boy, I wish I hadn't rejected what you had to offer because it had value. Well, yeah, and that's interesting. I mean, that is interesting. I mean, I'm a, I'm a writer and I'm a musician and stuff like that. And I, I often talk about, in when I'm talking about like researching a, a piece, I talk about curveballs. Like, it, you, you sort of, it's, 
the instinct sometimes is to reject everything else apart from the thing you're supposed to be working on. And actually, right. it's sometimes when you get the best ideas is when you you read a book that's got nothing to do with what you're writing, or you go out to the party that you feel would distract you. you know, those are the those curveball moments right. are often the times when you get the most uh, value. Right, just checking checking the time. Goodness gracious, so hard to get all of this in. Well, this yeah. is another, you know, that's another issue also, by the way, in terms of walking through the world of, you know, how does this serve? We get very stressed out and frustrated <laughs> with how, how, you know, how busy our life is. Why am I stuck in traffic? Why am I stuck in traffic? Yeah. I, I've, I've got somewhere I've got to be. Oh, this yeah, is yeah, horrible. Yeah. Everything's horrible. But first of all, we never know what that traffic might be saving us from. It might have been the thing that avoided an accident down the road for us. But what I always try to remind myself is, oh, maybe there's something right here around me that I'm supposed to see. Yeah. And that's just like that, you know, being in, it's the curveball. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Trying to get your attention onto something else because it's exactly what you need to well, see. Well, and often in these conversations that I've been having, that exact thing happens as well. The, the thing that you're, the thing that I'm not expecting to talk to the person about will be the, the most amazing. There really is so much that I wanted to talk to you about, but I'm going to skip to something that I don't think I've heard you talk about in this way because I think that might be interesting. So one of the things you were talking about recently on the podcast was that when you were young, you had a kind of interest in Beckett and Stoppard and Pinter, the absurdist playwrights. I, I have an interest in them myself. I, I was originally a, a I studied theatre at university. I'm a, I was originally a playwright. I'm interested in in those things, and absurdism being very different from surrealness. And one of the things that struck me when you were talking is because I, I like absurdism and I like realism. And one of the things that I found fascinating about when when you were talking about it is you were you were sort of saying absurdism is realism that it that we experience the world like a dream. So much of our life is weird and subconscious and hard to understand. And then I thought, when you were saying that, I thought, well, isn't that kind of what the people on the screen in, in The Truth Is Out There are sort of, what, what that film is, is an, almost an absurdist piece of, it feels like a dream when you're watching it. You know, it goes in all sorts of, like, like you'll have sudden moments that are about Dean Hagland's personal life that almost doesn't seem relevant to the, to the main thesis, but then kind of it swirls around and it, connects in interesting ways. I mean, well, I think the whole film is about him. I mean, someone yeah. says that, you know, we are all mirrors for each other. You know, as the Jungians say, there are no other people. There are just shards of glass reflecting ourselves back to us. And that doesn't mean, you know, and again, people get hung up on such literal things. That doesn't mean there aren't other people. What it means, though, is that what we're seeing are parts of ourselves reflected back because we're constantly projecting ourselves onto other people. So that's why, you know, you try to do the work to get to know every part, to get as intimate with yourself as possible so that we can reduce how much we're projecting onto other people and start to see them for who they are, yeah. right? Um, and I love that you brought up the absurdism because, again, it was the artist at the screening the other night who decried letting some of these people speak yeah. because their points of view were absurd. That's what he said, and and it made me laugh. Yeah. You know, wait a minute. Let's not. Are we really going to judge absurdism yeah. here as not being valuable? Because as I said on that show, you know, in watching Beckett now, it's just so stunning to me how he stripped away all but just the most necessary narrative. 
so that, again, as opposed to surrealism, you would be able to recognize that it is a play. Yeah. You know, it, it can never be, what is this? Yeah. I don't understand yeah. the yeah. form you know I'm what, seeing. You know what but, you're watching. But you know you're, you're seeing a play. But all other narrative is gone, so that all that is remaining are moments of truth. Yes, that's nice. And if the truth is out there, is absurdist in nature, indeed, and I'd never thought of it in terms of that way, but it, it is by giving the time for people to speak their truth, to tell their stories, and to sometimes come out the other side of it a, a different person. Some people start out in, in the film expressing an incredibly pessimistic worldview, and by the end of the interview, they are feeling optimistic about things, which is so often the case when they realize fellow human beings actually are paying attention yeah. to them, and they're no longer feeling isolated or judged. But through the absurdism of that, are there moments of truth that we can pick out? All I can speak for is myself, and say yes every time I watch it I pick out moments of truth and I mean and what did yeah I mean that was one of the things I was going to kind of ask you I mean because you're, you're not on screen most of the time there are a couple of moments where you are but you're mostly off screen and so you're the kind of you and the camera are this third person in all of those conversations that happen that we see and I wondered what you had kind of learned from the process because uh, also then you the, the second part of the process will have been going through reams and reams and reams of footage and selecting the pieces. I mean, did you learn anything about yourself or about the world? Or Yes. Uh, in, in watching through the camera lens, because I never let myself know in advance what these people were going to say because I wasn't making a movie about information or theories. I was making a movie about people mm -hmm. who perhaps are very invested in information and theories, but always about people. So I was, I, I tried to find the person in the frame and, and how that person might be, and they, and the interview subjects always picked where they were interviewed. So I always tried to photograph the space as much as I possibly could mm. to, to, to find what that space revealed about and there was the person for spaces as well I was really, yeah I mean not and, just the artwork but the other places and so what really came through in watching it was uh, you know again I'm not interested in belief I'm interested in what people know and what's the, and the difference to me fundamentally in in watching these interviews through the camera lens again and again is what we know is what we embody we walk through the world embodying what we know. And you watch these people and you see where their knowledge has led them, how they hold themselves, how they walk, how they might not be able to walk, how they move, you know, their energy. So much of this reveals where their knowledge has led them. And that's, that's very powerful. You know, it was very powerful for me, visually. In terms of editing it, I will never say that making this movie was fun. Uh, <laughs> it, it, was, it was horrible, especially post-production of it was, okay. was miserable. Every day going into the hell of not knowing what to do with these hundreds of hours of footage and, mm. and to spend time in some of these really, really dark places. But a, a couple of, of things hit me. The first was to realize that I wasn't so much an editor as I was the host of 
perhaps the most interesting dinner party ever. Uh, and I had invited these 24, 30, whatever it was, people to this dinner party. And my job was to be a good host. And then that freed me from this idea of how do I make sense of all this? No, my job is to be a good host. And what is a host's job? Host's job fundamentally is to make sure all his guests feel welcome. Mm. And why do we feel welcome? Well, because we feel seen, we feel heard, we are appreciated for being there and for attending. And that became what was my marching order. I wanted to make sure that everyone in the film would watch it and feel seen and heard and feel valued for something beyond the information that they had to offer, but for their time and for being a part of it. Mm. Much like what Dean makes them feel while they're talking to him. Mm. And for me personally, I learned something from every single person because I think at some point the penny dropped and that message to Dean about how there are no other people, there are just shards of glass and mirror reflecting ourselves back to us, meant that he had attracted all these people because they each had something to reveal about himself to him. Mm. And in the editing room I realized, but if that's true of him, I'm the one here in the editing room with all these people, so, so too much must they all have something to show me about myself. And then as an audience member, I felt a similar thing. So it has that kind of, ex- and that's, I guess- And that's why I think for. the film is spherical in nature. It's not linear, it's not circular, it's spherical mm. because no two perspectives on this film can possibly be the same. I agree Because that. each of us will form our own unique relationships to everyone in that movie. And it's based upon what we can learn about ourselves or what we're scared to learn about ourselves from these people. And it was great because then they told me how to edit their pieces. I just listened to them like an actor listens for his cues. I would just listen to them. Like when Bill Tiller, the physicist says, you know, actually looks at me, one of the only people in the film that looks at me while I'm shooting him talking to Dean. And he says to me, you're doing that. You're uh, creating order out of chaos. Yeah, that's a really nice moment. And I thought, okay, so this part of the movie has to be about creating order out of chaos. He just told me how to edit the movie. He looked at me and pointed at me and told me how to do it. That's really good. And in in their own way, everyone did that. That's how this project has been. It seems to write, it kind of creates itself. My my interview project and everything kind of feeds into everything else that's happening. And I just have to be open to it and allow each person to to have their space within it. There were so many things that I I felt were similar about what, and there are in Chill Pack Hollywood Hour and the truth is out there to what I'm doing. And it's really good to be able to have this kind of surprising conversation with the things that are kind of influencing me and commenting on what I'm doing. The, the last sort of question that I ask people is, do you have anything to plug? Which is obviously, majority of this conversation has partly been a plug. Yeah. Uh, but you're currently making Truth Is Out There 2 and 3, aren't you? I mean, yeah, would I have that my, be a good thing to plug? Well, I have my hands in a bunch of different things right now. I just directed a couple of scenes for a Lifetime movie, and I... If if people have found this conversation interesting, then I would just, you know, invite them to participate in the conversation every week on Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. Yeah, which is really worth Particularly if people are interested in film, because that's a a big area that I would have been fascinated, which maybe is for another conversation that I could have with you. Because I'm a 
student of film. I love film, and you have some very very interesting ideas. About we film. we talk about show business a lot. We talk about you know the, the, yeah, the business side of it. Yeah. The business side of it. We do our Chill Pack Hollywood lawsuit of the week. Yeah. We talk about live events. We talk about books. We talk about about movies. For the most part, if I could sum up what it is we do, I think we we're we're engaged in the world at, at large. And Dean and I like talking about whatever is going on in the world that has captured our attention or frustrated us or disturbs us and primarily discuss it through the prism of how that issue is being depicted by the media, mm-hmm. either in film or television or yeah. on the news or radio or whatever. And, and that's why we do it. So it, it, we do get into a lot of topics. And of course, I, I have a well-used soapbox that I stand on as as the resident town crier of the film business, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's fun and like, we like to tell people you know it's your chill pack Hollywood yeah. hour because I don't think we would have gotten through five years if we didn't get emails and texts and letters from people asking us to talk about certain things. In fact, at the screening the other day, they, they, he, they, it was rounded up oh. by someone from the back. Very, It was a really lovely moment saying to you, you know, I listen to you every week. I've, I saw the, I saw the, the, the opening of the, of the Troopers out there that happened in London. And she was really, she, yeah, she just said, thank you for doing what you do, didn't she? I think. Yeah. And that was a, it was a really lovely moment really yeah it was nice it was a nice payoff after uh, standing in the line of fire for yeah that's right you had it you had it hard and then yeah and then that came. in fairness there were other people that wanted to really pipe up and 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 challenge those people and, and yeah, I, take my part i but. did actually but i was worried about, as i said to you afterwards i just was worried about rehearsing this conversation so i didn't but i really I, I mean i think i did a couple of times challenge people but i i, I found it hard to hear people so so righteous challenging people who were righteous, you know? I think for anyone who is involved in art, the biggest frustration is you, you know, you have hopes for what you, you do, you know, just like parents have hopes for their children, right? Yeah. And you're ultimately powerless, and that's the beauty of it, in terms of how it's going to be received. Yeah. But it really is freeing when you get to the point that you realize you are not your work, you are, you know, in a very esoteric way you know you're the you're the vessel for that work but 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 the job is to play your part as artfully as you can you know play your part and even for the people who will react negatively if we can use that word to something that you've done have faith that they did get out of that work exactly what they were meant to well, get out of it. you wanted to create a response in your audience and you created a response. Yeah, and, and seeds will always be planted. And, and whether you're a musician or a dancer or a painter, no work of art is ever going to be universally loved or universally hailed. And if it is, it, it probably means that it it isn't that effective in, a, yeah. in an odd way. And, and nothing is ever universally reviled. Yeah. So just play your part and know that the part as storytellers, whether your medium is a visual medium or whether it is a performance medium or, or, or an audio medium, as a storyteller, realize that, that our job is to, to simply plant seeds. And that's a, a, a lovely, lovely thing to end with. It's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you. The last thing I ask people to do is uh, to say goodbye to the audience. Why don't I just say farewell for now? You can. But hopefully, conversation will continue and we will all continue to get better acquainted. Absolutely. I thoroughly agree. (laughs) 
can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at UBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website, www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.